You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is a replay from the virtual live broadcast series titled Women's Health 2020, Beyond the Annual Visit, provided by Omnia Education. Before beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everybody. I'm Anita Nelson, Professor and Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Western University of Health Sciences, and I'm looking forward to spending the next half hour with you. We're going to be talking a little bit about the endocrinologic changes that occur during the perimenopause and menopause to sort of frame what's going on so we can understand the symptomatology that women have. We are also going to be able to, for almost the first time ever, be able to look at different ethnic groups from both a physiologic standpoint and a cultural standpoint, and to see how the experience of menopause, uh, we understand certainly is different for different women, but there may be different experiences that groups of women may have. So a big question is, when can it start? Uh, and a good case here is this 43-year-old healthy woman. She comes in, she's been having perfectly normal monthly menses, but she's complaining of two months of what she now knows are hot flashes, and she's confused. She thought hot flashes came with menopause. So we gotta ask ourselves, does she need any tests? Okay, is this something that we have to base a laboratory on? Women are coming into your practice as they did to mine, begging for these tests that some expert like, I don't know, Oprah Winfrey told them that they needed to have. And you can tell just from the presentation itself that this is perimenopause, right? Um, and she doesn't need any tests unless you're working on some other uh, differential. The, the idea is that perimenopause is a clinical diagnosis. And if we get labs, it is only to establish that it's not some other cause. So how is it we can define perimenopause? Well, if we just think about the hormonal changes and how they affect the woman's menstrual flow, her periods get shorter, they get heavier, they get longer. She may actually have swings of hormones that can induce breast tenderness. Uh, she can have new for the first time in her life or increased dysmenorrhea. And then she begins to have some of the, the hot flash related things, including the mood swings and, and maybe some weight gain that happens. Um, and, and we've noticed more recently a new and increased on, onset of migraine headaches. What we've learned about perimenopause came from a wonderful study <clears throat> done just about two decades ago where the investigator followed a woman through 180 days of her perimenopausal experience and every single day drew FSH and estrone levels. And what is came apparent was that there are huge swings that, for instance, on day 60, the FSH is over 150 and the woman's estrogen levels are way below 20. You and I would be tempted to diagnose the woman with with menopause at this point. But if we look down a little bit further, we can see from, from the data that two weeks later she ovulated. So not only uh, do we uh, realize that it does not help to draw the hormone levels, but it can actually do the patient harm. The other thing we learned from the study is that these, in, these incredible swings in hormones are what account for many of the symptoms that women have as the estrogen levels drop, you know she's going to bleed. And if she's had high levels of estrogen for a while, she may have a very heavy bleed. And she may also become symptomatic from vasomotor symptoms. So clearly we see that FSH variability makes diagnosing menopause using FSH levels or, or hormone levels really quite problematic. And, and we shouldn't waste the woman's money. But let's get to menopause itself. 
by definition, it's when the, um, the ovary runs out of functional follicles and she develops estrogen deficiency. And that has multiple organ impacts. It impacts wrinkles in her skin, it thins her bones, the genitourinary system has profound impacts, it impacts on her cardiac health, and of course on her CNS. But the important point is that from what we know today, is just because menopause is due to estrogen deficiency, giving the woman estrogen may not be the best treatment. It certainly is very helpful in certain situations, but we've gotten rid of replacement therapy. We don't want women to think that we are automatically giving them something. They need to have a need for it, uh, and then it may be quite reasonable. So how is it that we diagnose menopause itself? Well, it's really easy if we've taken her ovaries out and shipped them to the lab. That's quite clear. But if we're waiting on nature, the traditional definition is 12 consecutive months of amenorrhea with no other etiology. Now, in a symptomatic woman, we may be um, willing to shorten that maybe after six months. That's still under debate. What we really want to know when we're making a diagnosis of menopause is this woman is not at risk for pregnancy. And... If she were to bleed, then we'd be even more worried. She has postmenopausal bleeding and we need to work it up. Other than that, it really doesn't matter. Um, and so if you've covered both of those bases, then you, you can, can um, certainly diagnose her earlier if you want to. But the important point is we don't wait until we formally diagnosed a woman with menopause before we try to alleviate her symptoms. And as the rest, uh, the rest of the uh, points we want to make, we learned from the other slide. We're not doing this by biochemistry. The one exception to that would be in a woman, very young woman, who has amenorrhea. We do want to uh, really <clears throat> lock in with serial studies that she has had uh, premature ovarian insufficiency. That is such an important diagnosis to make and so devastating. We really don't want to... Um, don't want to make a mistake on that. But for a, an appropriate age woman who has symptoms and she's had amenorrhea for a year, there really isn't a lot of stuff that we need to do uh, from a lab wise. Uh, another very important study that came out was the physiology of the hot flash itself. Now, this study is it's less than uh, 40 years old. Can you imagine how long women have been having hot flashes and we didn't know what was going on? Well, what, what this study showed us was that skin resistance drops, that women actually, when they have perspiration on the skin, can conduct electricity better. But what's really important was that we see the finger temperature, the, the body, the chest, even the toe temperature goes up two, three, four degrees centigrade. We've, we actually had a toe temperature measure in a woman that went up seven degrees. Women are on fire. We do see a drop in tympatic temperature. So there is this shifting of blood from the core to the periphery, just like when the fever breaks. Now, what was insightful with this study was the duration of a hot flash. She may, the woman may have uh, a, a really bad hot flash. She may complain of symptoms for four minutes or so, but the underlying physiology, this shift of blood flow, where we're actually exposing the brain and the kidneys to less blood perfusion that they have at other times, lasts for 15, 20, 30 minutes. Now that's good for the woman because she doesn't get another one until she's finished this one. But if, if there are impacts of this blood shift, flow shift, then they're, I think, a lot more profound than the woman's symptoms would lead us to believe. Now, uh, there's been some new insights 
there are women who actually walk right up to their last period and have no symptoms at all. And they look at the rest of us and they say, ha, huh, wimps. And, and it's not fair. But what's going on? Why are some women symptomatic and why are some women not symptomatic? And what we've learned is what triggers the symptoms is in, in the thermal regulatory zone of the hypothalamus that we know that um, there is sort of an excursion that our temperature go up and down, but we have a range that nothing happens, right? But if the temperature goes way up, right, then we develop a fever when it crosses that threshold. And then there's this compensation, right? As the body tries to bring the temperature down by shifting the blood flow, by sweating, by all of these types of things. And they've been able to demonstrate by putting a woman's fist into hot water, how hot the water has to be before she crosses her threshold. And there's a clear distinction between the women who develop hot flashes. They, they cross their threshold at a much lower level. They can't tolerate much excursions in normal fluctuations. Uh, but asymptomatic women have a broader zone and they can tolerate those, uh, those changes. And it gave us insight also what's going on. Why does estrogen work? Well, because it opens up that thermoregulatory zone. Why do SERMs work? They open up. What is SSRIs? They change that, uh, that, that thermoregulatory zone. So a woman can bounce around a lot more without becoming symptomatic. And this was independent of women's uh, body mass index, their estrogen levels, their progestin, even their skin fold thickness. So it was a measure of adiposity that there are some women where there's just a set point that's different. And now maybe we could target that set point and, and uh, provide relief. Now I made allusion to the fact that there is new information from the SWAN study that different women have different sort of experiences as they go through perimenopause. African-American women tend to report heavier bleeding, uh, probably because of fibroids and have hysterectomies. Oftentimes they have a higher BMI and higher rates of hot flashes in the perimenopause. Hispanic women, Puerto Rican, Central American, much more susceptible to metabolic changes, um, also uh, psychological changes, and they are also very uh, susceptible to vasomotor symptoms. In non-Hispanic Caucasians, the big thing that stands out is a lowering of the bone mineral density. Now, other things that happen, uh, if you cut the data otherwise and you look at socioeconomic status, uh, a low SES is associated with more depression, more intense menopausal symptoms, and perhaps even early menopause. And the difference that BMI plays is profound. In the perimenopause, that extra amount of adipose provides more, um, uh, it, it actually increases the insulation. So it's harder for women to radiate off the heat. But after menopause, that adipose makes estrogen and sort of a trade-off. Um, there's no increase in hot flashes compared to slender women. And in some studies, it may actually reduce the risk of vasomotor symptoms. Um, we do see that adiposity is associated with higher levels of androgens and, and some other issues. The very important thing that came out of this across all the boards is the late perimenopause. That year after her last period is when ten, women tend to be the most symptomatic. But that doesn't mean that that's, it's over, right? People will say, well, how long is this going on? I think I could put up with it for a couple of months. Uh, I think you probably already know that there are significant numbers of women who still have mild to moderate 
hot flashes a decade, two decades past their last menstrual period. So the newer information in this recommendation that we're balancing the risks and the benefits for individual women for the therapies that they're seeking allows us to continue to treat these women um, for longer periods of time and not abandon them after some arbitrary five-year limit. Now, what was the new insight uh, about the risks? Well, there's now been some research that shows that vasomotor symptoms actually the, and, and hot flashes are associated with indicators for other age-related risks. So people who have severe vasomotor symptoms had a 70% increase in their risk of getting cardiovascular disease, and they were more prone to getting osteoporosis. They also had a greater epigenic uh, aging process. Uh, and so there were factors when they tried to control for them, even after they got rid of some of these confounders, such as BMI and minority status, um, these still stood out. So another point for where we might target our investigations in the future. Well, let's move on to some of the therapies. And today we know we have a wide range of non-hormonal drugs we can offer women. And on label, um, we have the um, uh, the. Uh, Bristol. It is branded, uh, tends to be a little bit more expensive than chopping a, a 20 uh, milligram tablet, scored tablet of paroxetine, a generic version. But you have several of the, um, the, the uh, SSRIs that we can do it. Venlafaxine has been helpful. And the ones you may not have thought about before um, are gabapentin and pregabalin. I'm going to show you some data for those, those interventions too. Uh, on what basis would you recommend a therapy to a woman? Um, and uh, this is the classic study that first looked at estrogen as a therapy, but I really think this is a great model for us to be able to recommend for anything. And it's a, gotta be double-blinded, placebo controlled, um, and it has to be prospective. I can't remember how many hot flashes I had last Tuesday. And if it could be a crossover design where women are using one drug um, for a period of time and then they switch over when they don't know that they switched over and just see what happens. So this kind of a design is exactly what you're looking for. And the study from Coop and all showed that at every point, uh, estrogen therapy was far superior to placebo. But what is really amazing is the placebo reduced hot flashes by 50%. And and it persisted, that reduction was persistent. So I think this really is an important point to us when people come up and say, well, I used it, it worked. Um, you really need to know that it works better than a sugar pill. Um, and the other thing is that this study demonstrated that even though the placebo worked when the women were switched to the estrogen, uh, it, it dropped their hot flashes even more. And there was a very disturbing uh, rebound when women who'd been randomized to the estrogen were given the placebo, they actually uh, experienced hot flashes that were more frequent than they had at baseline. Um, there's a slow response that you have to tell people about. It's not gonna go, all your hot flashes aren't gonna go away tomorrow. Don't change the dose, give it a chance. You should start to see some impact in a week and then two weeks, oh yeah, this is getting better. And the other lesson is we're not completely obliterating them. We're trying to make life good. Uh, and the patient called me and said, uh, I had a hot flash last Tuesday. It was like, well, that's bad on me. I forgot to tell you, you're, you're going to have them every now and again. Did it bother you? No, but I just wanted to make sure it was okay. So counseling points are important. 
and the North American Menopause Society has, has changed the recommendations. Uh, they clearly said that the recommendation, the lowest dose for the shortest time, it provides the benefits, minimizes the risks, um, and that should be our goal. And the formulation, the dose, and the route of hormone therapy really needs to be determined individually and reassessed periodically. New things are coming out, new information is coming out, and she's changing through time. So this is in a lifetime prescription that we're writing for her. We want to be flexible and respond to her in, in whatever setting she is. Now, I really want to quickly review some new updates. You folks may all remember what the results, initial results of the Women's Health Initiative were, where it showed us a concern that there was an increase in the risk of heart attack, stroke, breast cancer, VTE, and even pulmonary emboli in women who got that combination therapy, even though in those women, the risk of colorectal cancer and hip fracture went down, and there was no difference in mortality rates, but women had those, those issues in the original population. Now that is different than what they had with just the estrogen arm. The only risk that remained elevated in the women who got estrogen alone was the risk of stroke. Uh, venous thromboembolism wasn't even any higher, and certainly total deaths weren't any higher, breast cancer wasn't any higher, and hip fractures. This is an important point. Hip fractures went down. Uh, measurably down. This is the only study of a general population that has demonstrated a reduction in hip fractures. It, this is the only modality. Everything else has been in high-risk patients. But the reason I showed you that was to see where we've come since then. Uh, and rather than saying that um, it increases the risk of heart attack, hormone therapy does, um, we now say that neither combination therapy or estrogen alone prevented heart disease in the whole population. But they've drilled down, as you know, in subgroup analyses. And we know today that women who are younger than 60 or less than 10 years from their last period, there's no increase in heart disease, even if you give estrogen and progestin together. And they found actually a subgroup of women, an important group, who had estrogen only. Uh, started again early, but had had an oophorectomy, there was actually a 32% reduction in all-cause mortality over that period of time of, of study, the 20 times that they've done it, if their, if their oophorectomy had been done before menopause. If a woman had still had her ovaries, uh, she just had a hysterectomy and she was getting estrogen, it made no difference. There was no increase, but there was no protection. So a little different than the stories we got from the headlines, if you remember that famous July day when they were announced. Uh, another analysis that nobody thought um, of initially, but has found that actually in the women who, um, uh, in, in uh, meta-analysis, including WHI, so it's more than just WHI, found that the risk of developing type two diabetes in women who are taking postmenopausal hormone th therapy was reduced by 30%. It, especially in the first years overall. So there was a strong benefit uh, in the first six years. And for prolonged use, there might have been a slight increase in, in insulin resistance with use. The big concentration has to be on BTE risk. And we can see that there is an increase overall for even for women under 60. Uh, and that it generally emerges in the first year or two and decreases over time. So the start, stop, start, stop of therapy actually increases her, her risk of VTE. And we noticed that women with a higher BMI had a, a much higher baseline risk and adding 
hormone therapy to a double that risk again. So particularly for women with higher BMIs, we worry more about the BTE risk. Now, there are some observational studies I'm sure you're aware of that suggest that there's a lower BTE risk when you give the estrogen transdermally. Also some suggestion, not definite proof, but the lower doses may be associated with lower risk. Um, micronized progesterone may be less thrombogenic than some of the traditional progestins we talked about. And reassuringly, um, if we're giving just topical estrogen vaginally, there is no excess VTE risk. So very important observations. The other very important issue is the issue around breast cancer. And I don't know if you remembered or not, but the original WHI actually showed a benefit for localized disease and ductal carcinoma, 30% reduction in those cancers. But overall, breast cancer was neutral. It crossed one, the confidence interval did, because it was a slight increase in lobular tumors. Well, take a deep breath, 20 years later, it's even more clear. In a wonderful follow-up where they had mortality information on 98% of the women, the women in the estrogen alone group had a lower risk of breast cancer. Look, the, the hazard ratio was 0.78, and the confidence interval was clearly on the protective side. The conjugated equine estrogen um, uh, alone is also associated with lower breast cancer mortality, really clear. When you add the progestin, there is a slightly higher risk, a 28% increased risk in the incidence of breast cancer. It tends to be estrogen sensitive, so there was no association with an increase in breast cancer mortality. That's because the confidence interval straddles, straddles one quite clearly. Well, what's new? Well, for vasomotor symptoms, we've got some gels. We've got gels in different doses that they significantly reduce hot flash uh, frequency. If the really low dose takes longer to work though, um, and you place it on alternate sides on the thigh in a, an upper part of five by seven inch uh, rectangle there. Try not to wash anything for an hour uh, and don't put any other sunscreens on it. So this is an estrogen only using the, the, the skin's own, um, the sub-Q area as, as a, a reservoir for release during the day. Another very exciting thing is if the issue is really the progestin, particularly when we're talking about breast cancer, could we find something else to use with the estrogen? And pairing an estrogen and an estrogen receptor modulator may not seem to make a lot of sense. They did it and it really works. You get a reduction in hot blast frequency and intensity, just like you get with estrogen, and it prevents bone loss, and there is no uterine or breast stimulation. There's uh, studies demonstrating improvements in uh, quality of life and sleep. And uh, so this is a new trend where we're putting together these tissue selective estrogen complexes uh, and uh, maybe a new way of, of protecting against endometrial hyperplasia, but not stimulating the breast. Now, this also reminds us of non-pharmacologic therapies. We need to think about lifestyle adaptation. Of course, we layer clothing. We do the paste respiration. We, we control the, as best we can the, uh, the humidity and the temperatures. Uh, all of those things, uh, women carry around the, the, the fans with the, with the little misting that helps. But from a, a more professional standpoint, we know cognitive behavior helps. Hypnotherapy can help. And uh, also weight loss can help. 
uh, and some mindfulness-based stress reduction. People have even found some uh, special soys that may be working. But in, in our little world, where we're talking about it, what else do we have? And there's been a, a review this year, a systemic review of both gabapentin and pregabalin, uh, and recognizing that these are structural analogs of the neurotransmitter GABA, you see that they widen the thermoregulatory zone in the hypothalamus, and they also reduce adrogenic hyperreaction, which can also um, help with the propagation of the hot flash itself. Now, in the, this review, the most common dose was about 900 milligrams, uh, but it went all the way up to 2,400. And they're giving that composite severity score of integrating both the frequency and the intensity a very, very uh, respons strong response, similar to what we get with the SSRIs. At the higher doses, some of the studies have shown that it actually worked almost as well as estrogen. But this is something that you can offer to patients who really can't take hormones. We don't want to forget um, uh, uh, the genital urinary syndrome of menopause, that we used to call it uh, vulvovaginal atrophy. Um, People don't like saying those words, and it forgot the ureter. So we now have this greater um, syndrome we call GSM. So it's the genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And you know, we, we start with moisturizers. If her complaint is around coital activity, we'll jump to the lubricants first. We'll use topical anesthetics rarely, but there are things, other things we can do. There's uh, pelvic floor therapy that can be helpful, particularly if there's some pain associated with intercourse. And um, the, the microablative and non-ablative laser therapies have been uh, touted recently. Uh, and counseling is very important, particularly for people um, who are cancer survivors. The impact of estrogen is undeniable. The weakest little bit of estrogen given topically intermittently can really increase the thickness of the epithelium, causes neovascularization over time, and invasion of the lymph again, so that she gets a little bit um, more give in her tissues and certainly a lot more moisturizers. Um, and this area actually uh, responds very well to topical therapy because there's a very high concentration of estrogen receptors there and in the urethra itself. We also are very excited about some non-estrogen hormonal therapies um, for, for this syndrome. Uh, we have now a product that has vaginal DHEA in it, and it introduces this idea of endocrinology intrachronology. So you give it locally, it gets taken into a cell, and it gets gets absorbed and converted in that cell to estrogen. And then it gets inactivated after it's had an effect. And this has measure, shown measurable increases in thickness, collagen fiber, compactness, and also mucus uh, production from the epithelium with very little systemic impact. Another group of therapies are selective estrogen receptor modulators. And here we have something that can be given orally. Um, it has an anti-estrogenic impact on the breast, strong endometrial uh, therapy, but is approved um, for the treatment uh, of dysmenorrhea. Uh, it carries on labeling the same contraindications in the US um, as estrogen does, so you have to do it. And let's not forget the bone. We know that, as I said, estrogen is the only um, therapy, and the WHI is the only study that has really studied normal, the whole range of women, not just high-risk women, and demonstrated 
definite improvement of bone health. Overall, though, we, we can attack this problem with lifestyle measures, uh, everything from smoking cessation, prevention of falls, encouraging exercise for balance. And we have a whole array of medications that can either stop or slow down bone loss. So you slow the osteoclast, and that's where hormonal therapy and the other anti-resorptives fall, or in medications that increase bone formation by stimulating the osteoblasts. And that's your, your uh, parathyroid there, Tony. Uh, Dr. Manson gave us a wonderful flow sheet that shows if a patient comes in with moderate to severe hot flashes that aren't responsive to lifestyle, then you want to know, um, uh, does she want hormones? Does she have contraindications? Uh, and if she wants hormones, then you actually can turn to risk stratification by cardiovascular disease. And if she's in a high risk, she's got a very high chance of um, developing cardiovascular disease more than a 10% chance, then probably you're not going to want to give her estrogen, right? She's already shown you that she has pre-existing vascular disease and may be at risk for those heart attacks. Um, and you decide whether she gets estrogen or no estrogen. And if all she's talking about is those um, genital urinary syndrome of menopause, then you can try the things we just talked about. We have to say a word about uh, bioidenticals and really condemn them for the lack of, of standardization and purity possible there, and realize that the FDA really encourages wherever possible, if there's something that is FDA approved, that's an equivalent, that we prescribe that. So in conclusion, we can see that menopause is a relatively new thing in a woman's life. That if we look at um, life expectancy, there's been a huge increase over the last hundred years. And people keep thinking that women are gonna live longer and longer. Well, that's not what happened at all. What happened was early on, there was a decrease in infant mortality. So women lived longer. Then we decreased maternal mortality and that let women live a little bit longer. And what we're all looking at here is what is classically defined as the rectangularization of the survival curve, that we all live as long as we can, as long as our, our, our genetics allow us to, and that the terminal event occurs very quickly. So that, that we are looking at one third of a woman's lifetime being spent after the menopause. And it is incumbent upon us really to make sure that the quality and the quantity of those years is enhanced. I thank you very much for your attention and look forward to talking to you some other time. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for listening.